Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. This week, Peter, I think we should start our discussion about uh, what is happening in Europe, uh, and a, a region which is of great interest to both of us. Um, while the virus has been spreading and governments have been responding in different ways, uh, there have been other issues bubbling along which are not unrelated to that in the European political arena. And there is a European Council meeting, a, me- a meeting of the uh, of the uh, ministers from the, all the countries in the EU this week coming up. And they're going to be talking about uh, their response to this crisis. So perhaps you could, we, you could kick us off here, Peter, by sort of sketching out what it is they're going to be discussing and why that is important and uh, relevant. Well, good morning, Jonathan, and um, uh, nice to see you again. And let's get stuck into this very important topic, because I do believe that Europe is once again at some form of crossroads. What the European Council will be discussing on Thursday is the results of the behind the scenes heavy negotiations going around, going on in the Eurogroup. And the subject is, is broadly speaking the following. Europe at the moment is split into two. Um, on the one side, you have the so-called creditor nations like Germany, Holland, Austria, and one or two others, who are those countries that have current account surpluses and that have essentially been, if you like, um, uh, selling their exports to the other half, which is countries like Portugal, Spain, and France as well, who are the so-called debtor countries. And what the debtor countries have now been urging the creditor countries to introduce is a so-called corona bond, which is also known in a way as a euro bond. So the corona bond would be an instrument which allows a newly created European entity to borrow money on the capital markets. And with the money that they're borrowing, they would then invest into corona solutions, in other words, how to get a grip on this COVID-19 virus. But of course, in the longer term, once the coronavirus subsides, there will be other structural and infrastructural investments that need to be made. Uh, and that would be more under the umbrella of what's called a euro bond. The, the reason why the um, debtor nations want that is fairly obvious because they need money to make investments in their own countries. And the reasons why the creditor nations don't want this is because the very concept of a joint bond, whether it's called a corona bond or a euro bond, means the mutualization of debts. Yeah. To put it uh, at its most extreme, it means that the German taxpayer would feel that he would be liable for the profligacy of the southern European countries. And he would have to uh, stand up for that and sort of indirectly guarantee the money spending southerners. It's sort of so this is this is this is all this is, in one way is very familiar stuff. It's just been 
in a sense, uh, overlaid or rebranded, if you like, with the issue of the coronavirus. Uh, and I guess the question really is, uh, are we any nearer to seeing a, an agreement by the, uh, by the uh, Northern European countries, to use a sort of shorthand for them, uh, and the Southern European countries than we were before? Or is it still kind of uh, pistols at dawn and uh, we kind of come to some agreement, but we never actually do anything very, very uh, important or profound as a result of these uh, arguments? It is certainly is pistols at dawn, but at the same time, Every time that the European Union has made a step forward, it has been during pistols at dawn and kicking and screaming and in the midst of a crisis. The last time that happened was in 2008. I think that there's a certain element of, which is disingenuous in this discussion, this discussion of why should the German taxpayer finance the Italian spender the reason it's disingenuous is because if you take countries like Italy, as an example, you've got the affluent, rich northern provinces, and then you've got the poor, some would say lazy, southerners. And the northern Italians are fed up to the teeth with financing the southerners who, who are not um, you know, showing the, the correct level of discipline. Um, incidentally, the same kind of discussion happens in lots of other countries including in the UK. The in south the of the, yeah, the, the, the southern counties are richer than the northern counties, and you have the same sort of divide, the north-south divide. In some countries, it's the east-west divide. But my point is that the, um, well, there are various points to, to mention. If, you, if Europe is going to end up with a euro bond, it's very important that you have some form of pan-European governance at the same time. The reason for that is very practical. Uh, if a euro bond is issued, then it's going to be rated by the rating agencies. And if this euro bond and the eurozone does not have some form of economic, fiscal, and monetary governance behind it, then it won't be long before the first flick of a switch, the rating agencies will downgrade the euro bond from triple A to double A to single A to triple B and so on. And that could, of course, wreak havoc in the portfolios of institutions. So the requirement for that to be some form of euro bond with some form of governance is, at the end of the day, nothing more than the completion of the economic and monetary union that was enshrined in the Treaty of Maastricht in 1992. Uh, those people who accuse the EU or the Eurozone of being half-baked is not quite true. The Eurozone is two-thirds baked in the sense that it has a legislature, it has a judiciary, in other words, the European Parliament and the European Court of Justice, but it doesn't have an executive. Uh, those are the three pillars for any you know, political a more democratic country. So I think that it's going to happen sooner or later, kicking and screaming, it will happen. And it will put, if you like, um, it will balance out the powers of the European Central Bank, who are all powerful, against a vacuum on the fiscal front on the other side. So what must happen will happen. Okay. So... But I think in order for that to happen, I mean, how far does that actually require 
because we know that the EU is a kind of legal uh, creation, if you like, and is bound by treaties and so on, will it not require a new treaty uh, agreement between all the members of the European Union? And can you actually see the, even in a crisis like this, can you actually see there being sufficient political momentum or agreement amongst different countries to actually take that third step which you're talking about? I think that economic hardship spurs political agreement. Every time political agreement has happened, it has come in the background of some hardship or some crisis, all the way back to the Treaty of Rome, and then including the, uh, the Treaty of Maastricht and the other treaties. Incidentally, those who push back against that, they say, ah, but we didn't sign up for this. But of course, we did I sign up. Who you're thinking of there? I can't think who you're thinking of there, uh, Peter. I, uh, I'm <laughs> thinking, thinking of, of an Englishman. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. Uh, I'm British as well, so I'm thinking of my fellow Brits. <laughs> Use that as an excuse to to, <laughs> to launch Brexit. But of course, the ever closer union, which is enshrined uh, in the not only in the spirit of the European Union, is also written in the text. Ever, the words ever closer union are in all these texts. So I don't think anyone can get away with saying this is not what we signed up. It's like saying, I didn't sign up for this insurance contract. Um, and then the insurer tells you, well, you did. It's written on the small print. Um, the ever closer union, I mean, joking apart, is not in the small print. It is, it is on the big print um, and governs the whole of the European Union. Okay, so, but even if we get there, I mean, one of the things that critics of the European Union are prone to say, I think, is that they're very good at kind of, you know, making the right noises, uh, and as you say, proceeding at a very, very slow pace in the direction which they, uh, which they, in theory, are committed. Um, but there are also other things about the EU. They do, for example, have, um, they do have uh, requirements about budget deficits and so on which aren't always observed. And uh, one has to worry that if you took the step you're thinking about where we take this final leap into, into European uh, uh, unity, that those particular flaws will... will what, what can you do to actually prevent that becoming a problem in future? In other words, if you allow for all these transfers and the issue of all this debt to help the southern nations, how are you going to police it? And is it going to have any credibility given how uh, perhaps limited the success has been so far? That is a very, very good question, which I'm glad that you're bringing up for discussion, because the first sinners who broke the stability pact, as it was called in those days, first it was called the stability pact, then it was called the stability and growth pact, because certain countries uh, wanted to introduce less disciplinary, um, if you like, less discipline. So they called it growth pact. The word growth is very wishy-washy. But the first... Um, the first two countries that broke the, that pact was, funnily enough, Germany and France. Indeed. When they exceeded, yes, do you remember, when they exceeded the 3% limit, the budget deficit limit, they both exceeded it. And when the European Commission wagged their finger and, and threatened to introduce the disciplinary measures, they were given two fingers, both by the French and by the Germans, and so they quickly retreated back into their hole and did nothing about it. Um, today we are faced with a crisis. The budget deficits are going to explode all across the European Union, all the way up to probably 
Nobody's going to do anything about it because it's an emergency. And then we'll have to see what comes after that. But to me, that's a good enough reason for going back onto the straight and narrow and pushing ahead with economic and monetary union. The last thing I would say about that, of course, is that the reason why the executive is missing from the European Union is because the, the European Council, the one that we'll be meeting on Thursday, is composed of heads of state and heads of government, government. And they are incapable of going beyond the system of the intergovernmental system of running Europe. That's the problem, the intergovernmental system. That is like a glass ceiling which urgently needs to be pierced. Right. Yeah. So, in, in a sense, just so that we can kind of put this in context, I mean, basically, you are arguing for, what well, are you arguing for a federal system in Europe? In other words, it's something similar to what they have in, in, uh, in the United States, where some of these transfers that are made from rich, country, rich regions to poor regions are effectively automatic. Ultimately, that's right. And by the way, it's not reinventing the wheel. That's what the Americans do. Indeed, that's what and, I do. As I said, yeah, they've been doing it for yes. a long time. Yeah. Yes, and the Swiss, in a way, do it as well. I think that there's a little bit of a confusion about the word federal. In the UK, federal is a dirty word because it conjures up the idea that there's a one super state, a big brother, who tells everybody else what to do. That's not quite what it really means. Look at Germany. Germany is a federal system. Switzerland is a confederal system, which is slightly different. But in both these systems, the local provinces have a lot of powers, powers of taxation and all that. And it's based on the principle of subsidiarity, which means that anything that can be decided at the local level should be decided at the local level. And this COVID-19 virus, by the way, is a prime, prime example of what cannot be solved at the local level and shows the limitations of the nation state. Fine. Okay. So I'll just, before I, there's lots more we could talk about this, and I'm sure we'll yeah. come back to this subject. But yeah. before we do, just tell me uh, if you think they will agree anything of any substance next week in one word. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, they won't. Right. They won't. But it doesn't mean that they won't agree to anything of substance in the following weeks. That's the way it works in Europe. It's, it's piecemeal, step by step. As yes. long as we can take one step forward, it's progress. Okay, well, uh, each to his own, I suppose. That's the, that's the answer there. You, you, if you want to proceed at a tortoise-like rate, that's, that's probably the best you can uh, <laughs> hope for. Uh, and no doubt we can have more interesting conversations about this before. So yes. let's just turn now, because it, so in other words, if they don't agree anything next week, it, is that it like to have any uh, impact on where we are in terms of the financial markets? Um, obviously, what we've seen in the last few weeks has been um, some pretty uh, decisive actions by governments and by central banks, which seems to have at least abated the financial market uh, crisis for the time being. Anyway, markets have been a little bit stronger. And uh, so the question now arises, of course, whether, well, are we actually there yet in terms of actually seeing an end to this current phase of the crisis and whether, you, whether we think that the financial markets, are, as this is their job, 
looking through the immediate news, which continues to be quite gloomy in terms of the virus, and, and what the uh, financial markets are expecting. Well, to, to, to answer the beginning of your question first, because you said what could happen in the European markets if the council doesn't or comes out with some wishy-washy statements, the thing to look at there is the bond market, is the sovereign bond market in general, and the spreads between the weaker uh, countries' borrowers and the stronger borrowers. And obviously, the usual suspect is the Italian spread. So look at the Italian spread um, uh, first. And then to, to address your, your question of, of the, what's happening in the markets, markets have been confounding expectations and rising, and a lot of observers have wondered why. And I think at a time like that, one has to go back to the principles that govern financial markets, not only the fact that stock markets are governed by the price of money, which they use as a discount rate to discount future earnings. And when that discount rate is nice and low, then of course the markets are more inclined to rise. And when the discount rate and the level of interest rates is designed and expected to stay low, lower for longer, then that puts a sort of floor under the share prices. So the first principle that you shouldn't fight the Fed is always applicable, whatever the bears and short sellers say. But in more general terms, uh, there are three pillars that underpin markets, what I call the triptych. The first is growth, the second is liquidity, and the third is valuation. So if we just pick off each of these three, uh, growth, I mean, growth expectations have now finally um, the, the, first, the first statistics came out from China in the last couple of days. Growth is going to be awful. But we know that now. We know that it's going to be awful. There are a lot of predictions about the degree of awfulness. So growth will be pretty bad, but we know it at least. So the uncertainty seems to be ebbing away. Secondly, with regard to liquidity, well, liquidity actually continues to be plentiful. Uh, I'm talking about liquidity in portfolios, liquidity in the pocket of the consumer. And so there's a lot of money sloshing around, waiting for the moment. Um, and that, of course, is also underpinned by low interest rates. And then the third pillar of the triptych, or um, panel, rather, of the triptych, is the valuation question. That is less clear, of course. Uh, but share prices have fallen, and they are, they are cheaper. We mustn't forget that the earnings numbers as they come out, uh, they concern the past rather than the future. And if the expectations for the, a rebound in earnings, more or less, uh, come through, and now we're in the middle or we've just started the earnings season, then one can get a handle on valuation as well. And it is unlikely that valuation will be such a horror story. In other words, it's unlikely that the market would say that the PE ratios are much too high because in a background of interest rates being lower for longer, valuations deserve to be slightly higher. So even if earnings numbers for 2020 are still up in the air, 
and that there's a relentless media barrage of negativity, you nonetheless have a positive, what I call a wall of worry cocktail that is pushing up share prices. Okay, so, I mean, the, some, some points there I might, I might put to you. One is that, I mean, obviously, we don't know. There is a lot of uncertainty out there. I mean, I think it's true that something like 300 companies in America have withdrawn their earnings guidance, you know, the system by which they kind of nudge the market to, towards a, uh, an estimate of their next earnings report, which they then usually beat by a small margin. It's all rather kind of managed. But 300 companies have withdrawn their earnings guidance because they don't know quite what's going to happen yet. So that's, that's an, that is an element of uncertainty about the growth. And then on, as, as we've talked about our friends in the dismal science, the economists, I was quite amused to read a survey by the Wall Street Journal which said that the estimates for GDP, this is American GDP in the second quarter, they range from from zero uh, percent uh, growth to minus fifty percent growth, uh, mm-hmm. with an average of minus twenty five. And of course, you wouldn't also know from that though that those are annualized figures. So when they're saying in the second quarter it's going to, they're not saying it's going to fall by fifty percent. They're saying it's going to fall by at an annualized rate of fifty percent, which is in fact twelve and a half percent, or roughly twelve percent, or something like that. Anyway, yeah. Um, so there is still a lot of uncertainty out there, and the question, I guess, is I, I would I would put to you is this thought that what the markets are also looking for is uh, an estimate of how long this this period of uncertainty is going to last, and, or, or indeed how long the earnings impact of uh, of the virus is going to last. In other words, how long the lockdown is going to last. And they must be implicitly, to be where they are today, they must be implicitly making some fairly um, robust assumptions that it's not going to last too long. Yes, and they may be basing that on the rather surprising news that's coming out of China, where something like 80 to 90% of economic activity has been resumed. Um, And uh, in other words, and that's important, I think, because the the much-vaunted supply shock is probably going to be alleviated because of the fact that uh, China, which is a great supplier, that that there's less of a supply shock uh, than was was feared at the beginning. So you now have the demand shock from Europe, which is a few months, and, and America, which is a few months behind in the COVID-19. Um, therefore, the question is, if you find that you have a V-shaped recovery in China, um, if that is maybe evidenced by statistics in the next few weeks and months, the next question will be, will it be possible for the European and for the American economies not to mention the rest of the Asian economies, also to enjoy a V-shaped recovery, or will it be a U-shaped recovery or a J-curve-shaped recovery or whatever you want to call it? We don't really know. Uh, We don't really know the answer to that. All we know is that the three pillars, which are growth, liquidity, and valuation, can at least be more or less accurately, and I repeat, more or less accurately, defined. And that's not bad. And the, the collapse of the volatility index, I think, is quite an important early indicator that a little bit more calm for the time being might be returning into the markets. So we are in a position where the market fell very sharply uh, and has now recovered a little bit, about nearly half of what it, what it uh, what it's lost. But we can't surely be saying that, even allowing for all these factors that you've mentioned, 
Uh, and the fact that the, the big unknown in, to my mind is the fact what kind of psychological impact is he going to have on consumers when they come through this phase? We don't quite know whether people are going to react by, by spending more or saving more uh, and so on. We don't quite know whether how demand is going to be affected. We know, we obviously know, the market's obviously assuming that whatever the shape of the curve, the outcome is not going to be X-rated anyway, whatever the shape of the curve is, is yeah. going to be. Yeah. But um, we can't really be saying, though, that the market's actually going to be exactly back where it was when we all started this, are we? Because this cannot have had this, this whole episode with all the consequences for uh, government finances and indeed corporate finances. We can't say that actually we're going to necessarily go straight back to where we were. The, the, the value of the, if you like, the, uh, the corporate world, the listed corporate world is going to go back to where it was at the start. That seems counterintuitive. Well, two weeks ago, you, you, um, when you put me on the spot, you said you wouldn't put me on the spot again. <laughs> I, don't <laughs> I don't consider myself on the spot. But I do notice something very interesting, which we touched on last week, is that the corporate bond market, and especially the junk bond market, yes. is beginning to find both uh, supply and demand. And that has continued. Like, for example, Ford Motor Credit has now borrowed a lot of money, and it was heavily oversubscribed. And even though they're paying much higher interest rate now than they did the last time around a few, a few months ago. It is nonetheless important. And I mentioned that company because car manufacturers, I mean, a car is the first thing that the consumer will put on the back burner when he runs into trouble. And therefore, at the same time, the fact that the, the car companies seem to be able now to borrow money and find lenders is probably quite a good early warning or early early sign. Um, I think the consumers who've got savings rates which have gone up in the last few years, I think they're itching, not all of them, but many of them are itching to go out uh, and consume as soon as the lockdown. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of people on the streets. The shops are going to be full again. I'm not really too worried about the pent-up demand part of the equation. I don't see uh, the great, I may be wrong, but I don't see you know, great depression like in the 1920s or 30s because I think that the, the just-in-time economy will come back and the economy today is completely different, you know, coronavirus or not, from what it used to be. And I know that there are a lot of bears who are saying that globalization will now succumb to deglobalization and isolationism and protectionism and so on and so forth. I think one has to be a little bit more sanguine than that because those are the signals that are being sent out by various corners of the financial markets and we need to take these signals very seriously. Well, I think there are lots of issues there. I think we're coming to the end of our time, so I'm, I'm not going to have a chance to, uh, to uh, challenge one of, a couple of things you said there, but uh, it will be fun to do that. I'm sure we're going to have plenty of time to do that in the coming weeks. I mean, one of the reasons I think why the corporate bond market has... Uh, sprung back into life, if you like, or the spreads are really narrowed, is that it does appear that central banks are going to effectively kind of underwrite all the junk bonds in the world. And that must be uh, something which I think you don't have to be a kind of uh, a doomster just to think that there must be some risks attached to that, if that is what, where the direction we're going. However, these are all for things we can continue to discuss in future weeks. Peter, as always, it's a pleasure to discuss these matters with you. And uh, I... Uh, I, I shan't be going out to the, uh, the bookmakers and placing a bet on a favourable outcome, uh, as you would see it from next week's council meeting in Europe. 
Um, yes. But I'm not going to lose any sleep about that personally, but uh, we no. shall wait and see anyway. Thanks again for your time, Peter, and for the very enjoyable and instructive discussion. Thank you very much indeed, Jonathan. Very enjoyable and instructive as ever. Thanking you. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.